This meeting is being recorded. I think that's going to be my new mantra whenever I start a recording for the Protector Show. Anthony, welcome to the show, and you are being recorded. How's it going, brother? Jason, thank you so so much for having me on the uh, on your show. Oh, anytime, man. Um, we linked up, I think, through LinkedIn. Linked up yeah, through LinkedIn. It's uh, so many people through LinkedIn, man, and I really like that outlet. It's, it's a little bit different. It's getting away from the social media, it, but it's kind of turning into a social media, but it's more of like, I like it. So if anybody out there isn't using LinkedIn, kind of take a look at that as for your uh, professional outlet. No, it, it's, a, it's a good outlet and it's, it's, I've, I've noticed that I'm able to keep in touch with a lot of veterans in the community, both in the UK and in America. The guys who don't do the whole social media thing, Facebook, a lot of them are on the professional networks. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of connections, especially in the security world and especially in a post-military life. And one thing I did want to talk about, you mentioned veterans, is you know, we have our issues here in the United States, but I'm always wondering, you know, whenever I talk to any UK vets, what it's like over there for you all. Like, are you going through the same issues that we are here? Um veteran suicide pts uh, issues with getting help yeah um the situation in the great britain united kingdom is nearly exactly the same as what you're finding over in america we have a lot of issues over here with veterans with the suicide rates going through the roof with ptsd affecting them the families and the children it is it is an underlining problem I think a lot of official agencies, they, they do a lot of work. The government do a lot of good work, but I think a lot more can be done to help our fellow veterans out there. I, I see that a lot here, too. There's a lot of bureaucracy at the top that kind of really slows the process. But then I hear really good stories about our veterans affairs, you know, at the at the local levels. You know, there's certain people, but it's like as a whole you know, the issue is kind of broken and we're trying to fix that. We've been attempting to fix it, but it's like putting your healthcare into a non-private, into a government hands is tough for us. So I don't know if it's the same, same situation over there as far as like, Hey, you know what? You need to go get help. It's service related. How do you do it? Do you have those same issues there? We have a lot of, well, yeah, we do. We, we have the same issues over here. We are, we are very fortunate. We have the and NHS over in England, the healthcare. So everyone is entitled to healthcare, free healthcare in the United Kingdom. The veteran affairs, it can be quite a specialized subject as well. But I feel as if a lot of um, a lot of doctors and health practices are now aware that there is issues surrounding from with, with veterans, with PTSD and other things that can spin off that. As, as well and i think the fact that people now are speaking out about it is so important there was a time where nobody and you know this yourself no one would ever acknowledge you had mental health problems ptsd because if you did in the, in the military and you come out with that your career was over 
Uh, I think now people do acknowledge that there is a slight problem there. Yeah, it's it was huge stigma. Stigma, stigma, stigma. That coming out and saying, hey, you know what? I need help in your career. Is, it's like you might as well just retire or get out because you had no career. We still have some of those issues here. It just depends on your chain of command. It depends on who you're reaching out to as well. But getting rid of that stigma is huge. Um, we have, you know, one thing we do have here is so many nonprofit organization, non-government organizations that are trying to put a helping hand into it. And you and I were talking in the pre uh, the pre-interview about small businesses are really stepping up. And even with what they've had to go through with COVID, they're still stepping up for the veterans over there. Yeah, it's um the government over here in the United Kingdom have, like I said before, have done some really good, good work and they are really trying. But I feel as if there's a lot more, a lot more that can be done at the top end, at the leadership level, coming down to local, then down to the veterans and the families. A lot more work can be done. The little companies and little groups, some of them charities, some of them are private companies, have really stepped up. Um, during COVID, we saw some very small companies who stepped up to help and to feed and look after veterans, the families, and children. Um, it was generally the people who you wouldn't expect needed a little bit of help that wouldn't come, come forward. So what I saw was some of the younger veterans looking out for the older ones because the older ones wouldn't ask for anything. So they're not getting a handout from the charity. It's help from another veteran, another one of their brothers and sisters. And I think that has happened over in America as well. Veterans are actually now starting to help each other, which is a good thing. On a local level, then it's moving to a regional level as well. Have you seen that over there as well? Yeah, we have. You know, there's a lot of grassroots and there's a lot of ripple effect here. There's a lot of people helping in one part of the country. And next thing you know, they, they're linked up with someone on the other part of the country. So we are seeing that here. And then, you know, one thing you really touches home is like, we've been at war for 20 years. So when you talk about the younger veterans helping out the older veterans, I'm like, wow. You know, because when I went to war, it was 17 years. Was it seven? Yeah, it was, it was pretty long. It was like 15, 16 years ago, 2005, 2006. And I think right. that's that's a long ass time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Wow. Well, to get in a perspective, I was speaking to one of the uh, one of the generals in America who still serves now in the American military. And he reminded me it's the 20th anniversary of September the 11th. Yep. So we were at war for 20 years. And so some of the people who were who were in the military now were not even born yeah. when this all, all started. Now, I had to take a step back and think about that. I went, wow, you're right. Some of these soldiers now who we're speaking to or teaching weren't even born. Now, now I feel old. Yeah. And, you know, when I first went in the Army, it was in 1990s, 1993. So I right. went into a, our, our Army when there was no war going on. 
and then a transition and eventually you're in a whole you're in a wartime situation so everybody that joined after 9-11 knew they were going to war so yeah. that's what's that's what's interesting about this whole dynamic and i've noticed that i'm i think that dynamic when it comes to your ego and not wanting to get help there's always something that says somebody else always had it worse than i did there's someone else that you know I don't deserve it. I didn't do a lot over there or I did too much, but that ego gets in a way of sometimes going to get help. Yeah. I have, um, I've, I have seen that. I've sat with some highly de decorated individuals, both in America and in the United Kingdom. And they were very proud. I would say some of them egos. Yeah. Some of them, but not all of them. A lot of it was more, embarrassed and not sure how to ask i think that was right but i think if as long as people realize that it doesn't matter whether you're in combat for a day a year or 10 years or even more it can affect everyone in a different way and if people um i've got a couple of a couple of issues that they they feel as if they have to have, have to address it isn't just affecting them it's affecting the families and the children. That's so important. A lot of people forget about that. It isn't just you as a person. It affects us everything around you. So anyone who's watching, if you think as if you do need maybe a little bit of a helping hand, reach out to somebody out there. There's a lot of us who have been through this. I've been through a lot of this. So I'm not just talking out of a textbook, being it, seen it, got the T-shirt, went through a very hard time. Come through it. But now I'm using my experience to help some of the younger ones and the older ones as 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 well. Yeah, I don't know if ego is the right word, probably pride. But yeah, you pride, know, that's yeah, right. the the thing is, you know, like I've been a therapist and everything, and I always tell people I'm like I've been to one I went to one therapist, didn't work out, went to another and didn't work out, third, fourth, fifth. The I think the fifth or sixth try is when I finally found someone I could talk to. Um, and it, it, you know, it takes a while. And if you can't find someone right away, don't get, don't get turned around. Don't, don't get turned away from it either. You know, there are people out there to talk, especially fellow veterans, especially ones that are very open to it and not the destructive type where, Hey, let's go out and get hammered, get drunk and then talk about it. Let's talk about it outside of a bar situation. Yeah. I think, um, alcohol is something when you're in the military. You take it for granted. You go out, you have a good beer, you let off steam. Great when you're in the military. When you're in a family environment, that's actually self-destructive. So people have got to look beyond that and think, hang on a second, maybe talking about this with a clear head so we all know what we're talking about, going to other veterans and talking. Because I'll guarantee if a veteran's out there and he's listening to this as well, He'll know veterans who are going through this or have been through this as well. Asking a little bit of advice is not a bad thing. Think about it. On the battlefield, if you weren't sure about something, you would ask. End up. You wouldn't pull back out of pride or anything. You would ask. So in civilian street, if there's a little bit of an issue you think you might, well, you might want to handle with, turn around to someone you, you know and ask them, and you'll be surprised. They might have been through it and you don't even know about it. Yeah, abs that is absolutely true. You never know who you're really talking to. 
and you never know what their experiences have been. You know, one thing is that transition, transition is tough, if, especially if you don't have the next mission. So I know, and I know COVID kind of locked a lot of people up and it's especially hard for the transitioning service members, but your next mission, you always got to think about what your next mission is going to be. What, almost like what's your next job, but you have to have a plan before you get out and start working it. And if you don't have one, it's not too late. You can still work the problem. Yeah, I think I think the security industry as well, it's a very easy way out for a lot of people. They miss being in the combat zones. They think, oh, we're out the mill. We'll go back in to do uh, private military contracting. But they're still in the combat zone. They've transitioned out of, out of the military, out of one uniform into another one. Because I've actually met a lot of guys who, their, their PTSD and some of their mental health doesn't stem from being in the military. It's what they did after that. So there is, there is a lot of elements to, to this. But anyone, it doesn't matter what uniform you've been in. If you've been in a, in a live combat zone and you've seen war up close and personal, it changes every, everyone who's ever been there. Some people can handle it a little bit better than other ones. But what, what I'm seeing, especially with, with America, a lot of very young soldiers went in, done four, five, six, seven tours at war, then left the military. And they're still young. They're very young. They haven't done anything else in in life. And I think they've got to realise there's more to life than what they've seen to that point. Um, but it is it's quite I've, – I've spoken to a guy who was – I'm not going to mention any names, but he was in a very special issue unit, and he was 26 years old. I am 50 years old. I'm old enough to be his dad. I mean – I'm like, yeah, I feel all that one. But he'd seen more combat than a lot of other guys that I actually know. He'd been in the thick of it from a very young age. And he turned around to me and said, is this going to get any easier or is it going to get any better around in time? And I said, I'm telling you, you won't forget everything that you've seen, but use it to your advantage. Use the experience and put it behind you. Move on. You've got a life now. Uh, and he started to do really well. Got a family, got himself a good job in civilian street. He made the step. He made the transition. So if he can do it, anyone out there can do it. Yeah, you can. You know, you really can. And that's the thing with this war is you're seeing so many young people going right out of school into specialized units, right into combat like a year later, less than a year later. It's it's almost we haven't seen anything like this since our Vietnam War, where yeah. you're getting right out of school and you're going right into direct combat, like after your training, obviously. But yeah, it's it's a definitely a, a different situation, and I'd love to see the end of wars. We never will. I know that that's a realistic look at it, but I'd like to see the end of these endless wars, and we're hopefully going to see that transition soon with Afghanistan, and we've seen a lot of it with Iraq. We still have other issues all over the world from Africa to the Philippines, everywhere else. There's 
uh, terror cells and other types of insurgent type activity. But it's, you know, that just as well as I do. And that is why we're going to transition into your books. You have four books out the rogue warrior series. I like that. Let's uh, let's talk about that. How did you, uh, what is your backstory for our U S listeners out there? Well, my uh, backstory, full name, Anthony Stephen Malone. I'm a veteran of the parachute regiment, United Kingdom. I'm a fifth generation soldier. So it it dates back in my family to serve for a, a long time. I became an embedded combat photographer with 101st Airborne Division in in Iraq. Met some interesting people there, including David Petraeus, who is now who was now obviously the former head of the CIA. I became an an agent for the Central Intelligence Agency, um, and I worked for for the American agency in Afghanistan, in Lebanon, and Iraq for many years. I ended up uh, infiltrating, going undercover inside a terrorist um, network and cell. First, I got I got to stop you right there. How do you go work for the CIA? Do they recruit uh, you like the old fashioned? Let's go meet at a, a coffee shop and they pitch you, or how does that work? It was. You don't have to give any way technically. Yeah, no, I, I ain't going to give any tradecraft or anything like that. Yeah, it was. It was an unusual one. Um, I was in a war zone anyway. They asked for a favor. Did the favor? Didn't think anything else of it. They wanted some information on higher value targets. We helped them get that. Turns out that little bit of information actually captured alive 28 high value targets in one evening in Iraq. Wow. Um, so that was a good result. That got the, my, the attention of quite a few individuals on, on that evening. Um, then from there, it went from strength, strength, to strength. Um, I became a source. Uh, grade A source for American and British intelligence. Um, then I met some friends who I already suspected were working in the CIA anyway. Uh, turns out they actually were. And I was asked, would I do certain things? And I said, yeah, um, I'm game for that. My objective was to stop as many terrorist attacks and save as many American and British coalition soldiers lives at that point. Didn't think it would go the way it did. Ended up being an agent for quite some time, including being undercover for a three-year period inside Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Akani network in a maximum security prison in Afghanistan. Wow. How does that work? And how do, how do you mentally get through something like that? Um, mentally got through it. it. It took a lot out of me. Um, and every day inside, was an American British soldier returning home to the families. So I was able to stop. I've been informed now conservatively that I was able to stop over 100 terror attacks, IED attacks and suicide attacks. Um, Obviously, a lot of my very close friends were in the British Parachute Regiment and the Royal Marines that were in Helmand at the time. And my other close friends we're in 101st Airborne Division in Eastern Afghanistan. And all regiments, we were taking heavy casualties at this point. So I thought, rather than just being on the cover for a couple of months, I stayed in there 
and my instruction was do not pull me out unless you absolutely have to because every day in there was a, a, an, an attack being stopped. And that's all in your books? Yep, everything's in my book, in in, in my book, On a Bound Rogue Warrior, a very d- detailed account. There weren't meant to be a commercial book. I wrote it for American intelligence after the events, so it would be a, a memoir. I use my diaries, audio diaries, so it's a very detailed account of everything. It says what works, what does not work. And I decided to go very old school, for want of a better word, photographing notebooks, um, cloning SIM cards, recording um, conversations and meetings that were taking place. Um, I was actually with Salahuddin, who is the head of the Akani Network and head of operations now for the Taliban. I was Saladin's right-hand man for nearly three years inside of Polishaki maximum security jail. I had the big beard, the long hair, down my back, all the robes. So I was I was playing a part, but I was playing it well. I really want to... Okay, so I'm going to read this book, and then we're going to have an interview too, because I'm really interested in this. I love counterterrorism. When I, when I was a kid... Growing up, you know, we didn't have, you know, we're almost about the same age. There was, there was no internet and everything you had was books. So yeah. I read everything I could about counterterrorism back then. Anything, anything that we're doing. So I really want to pick your brain on that. So let me get that book. Let me read it. And let me have you back on and talk to you about that, man. It sounds like a really interesting story. It's to, to me, it was just a job. I was asked to do certain things. I stepped up to the mark. Some friends of mine were being killed. In total, we lost 28, 28 of me close friends in the war on terror. Um, and the CIA, we took a hell of a hit when the suicide attack hit Camp Chapman mm-hmm. as well. We all lost good friends that, that day. So I didn't need any more motivation for what I was doing. The f- fact that it comes out in the books, I wasn't expecting to walk out of there alive. I pushed it so hard and knew if I had been caught photographing senior Al-Qaeda commanders, notebooks, diaries, anything they had, my head would have just come straight off at that point. But it was a, it was a calculated risk. It was a risk that was worth taking. And it helped us map out their safe houses, supply routes, everything they had. Not just in Afghanistan, it spread out all over the world. We pinged so many telephone numbers and real names. Unbelievable. But it worked well. And without people like you doing this and without people out there still doing this, preventing, I, you know, I wish... I knew how many attacks have been stopped by people like you, like worldwide. I, think it's I can't nice even. That we we don't for the intelligence services. I've done a, a, a little bit. The intelligence service, both in the United States and the United Kingdom and other countries, Canada, Australia, they do incredible work. These are the men and women who who basically live in the shadows keep the country safe. 
Sometimes it's it's the right thing the public don't hear about our successes, but they always hear about the failures. So mm-hmm. for every 100 attacks stopped, one might have been able to get through. But they I think always, the boys and girls hear about what, the failures. Do, what, what they do on a daily basis, and I've seen this with my own eyes on the ground, some of the men and women in American intelligence are incredible. It is them who everyone should be given a pat on the on, on the back to. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. There are so many people working in the shadows that we have no idea how much they're doing to protect our way of life and freedom. So big kudos to them, man. Big kudos to you. I, I, I love talking about this stuff, man. But I want to read that book. So you'll, you'll read it, you'll find it interesting. A lot a lot yeah. of people who have read the book have learned a lot f- from the book. And a lot of these guys are seasoned operators, Green Berets, Delta, mm-hmm. Steels, Special Air Service boys. They've all read it and they've come back to me. So a lot of these guys I have I actually still in, in contact with now. And they said we didn't realize all of that. We we didn't know. And I said, well, not many people actually knew. But we, we kept what we were doing very tight, very small. So then the, it didn't have many working parts. So press could go wrong. The only really bad thing was the small political issue that the American government never told the British government what was going on at the time. So in the book, this is interesting because um, I am branded a terrorist by my own country, not, not the government, people in it, who were trying to hide for their own political gains, I think. So I was actually down, my my Arabic name, Al-Uddin Saeed Ahmed, is actually known as a terrorist commander, which is me. And it was the guys when I got back into England from um, counterterrorism Scotland Yard who shook me hand and said, we can never officially say any of this, but, oh, my God, thank you. <laughs> and I said, hey, lads, it's all right. It's done, isn't it? So now that that world is behind you in a way, I'm sure, yeah. what are you doing now? What I do now is I actually run um, a little organization. It's a private company called Patriot. Um, and obviously I do make my own little podcast show called The Patriot Show. And it's purely there to help veterans, their families, children, and veteran-owned companies across America and the United Kingdom. We promote people free of charge, the companies, and we're just trying to help some of the some of the veteran companies who have been through a very hard time get back on the feet during COVID. We also bought a lot of PPE equipment, which my my the, when I sold my books, all the money for my books and my talks all goes into Patriot. So we bought a lot of PPE equipment during COVID and we gave it free of charge to all people's care homes and to hospitals in the United Kingdom. There was thousands of pieces of PPE equipment and we also managed to feed it. It wasn't a lot, but we managed to open up a food supply run to veteran families who didn't have an awful lot. I mean, they had hardly anything to, to, to actually eat. 
we found out about that and it expanded very quickly. So we were ending up feeding a lot of families between 50 and 100. And we, we, we still do that now as well. That's awesome, Anthony. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. And I appreciate you inviting me on your show. I'm looking forward to doing that. Exactly. And uh, I'm going to get you on mine, Uh-oh. I'm going to be in the uh, the interrogation booth next. Hell yeah. I appreciate nah, it's, been, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Jason. It's been a pleasure being on your show. And I hope your viewers have found it interesting and informative in, in as well. Absolutely.